At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. How many of you are glad for Jesus? Amen. No other name but the name of Jesus. So thankful for that name and for who he is and what he means to us. I'm so thankful to be here this morning. I drove up and I saw that big, uh, what I thought was a smoker sitting in the parking lot. And I was getting all excited. And then they said, no, it's just a barbecue grill. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe next time there will be a smoker. Who knows? Um, you never know. How many of you know Tom Brady? And like the dozen of you that are unwilling to raise your hand, that's okay. For those of you who don't know, talk to the people who did raise their hand. In 2005, June of 2005, Tom Brady gave an interview to 60 Minutes. And in that interview, um, this was back when he had already won three Super Bowls. He was dating a supermodel. He was making millions upon millions of dollars. He was having an MVP kind of season that year in 2005. The team had gone undefeated. By the way, this was the New England Patriots days, 2005. <clears throat> and in that interview, here is what he said. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me? I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, can't, this can't all be what it's cracked up to be. And the interviewer was stunned, shocked. It took a minute or two for him to recover, and then he asked Tom. He said, well then, Tom, what is the answer? And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You'd agree, he, Tom is one of the most successful men in all of professional sports, probably the greatest of all time, and yes, we can argue that topic to no end, but he is certainly one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, if not the greatest, and yet for a man who has all of the success and all of the fame and all of the wealth and all of everything we would all aspire to have, Tom Brady is wondering, is this all there is to life? It's interesting that Solomon had the very same question. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We've been in this book for the last two weeks, and we've seen how Solomon, we believe it's Solomon, um, who wrote this book, has tried to write down a journal of all the things that he did, trying to find satisfaction in life. What will it take? Where can he go? What can he do to find lasting satisfaction in this world? And last two weeks, we've looked at the introduction, and even last week, we looked at how he pursued wisdom in an effort to find satisfaction. He, he put all of his energy and all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge in pursuing wisdom. And last week, we found that the pursuit of wisdom ended up with what word? Help me, church. You guys weren't here last week? 
vanity. You remember that word, vanity? If you don't remember, let me help you. We tried to define vanity for you. It's one of the most important words in this book to understand. Vanity means vapor, mist, chasing after the wind. And let me demonstrate it for you. You got to watch now. This is very important. Here is what vanity looks like demonstrated. Ready? <sighs> Did you all see that? You mi- I know you missed it. You weren't looking. So let me try it again. Here's vanity. Ready? <sighs> Did you see that? That's vanity. It's just, it's gone. It's momentary, temporary, insubstantial, cannot be grasped. That's the idea. It's futile. Pursuing wisdom in search of satisfaction is vanity. There's another phrase we defined a couple of weeks ago that is key to understanding this book. And that is the phrase, under the sun. You remember that phrase, under the sun? And by under the sun, what he means is that when he looks at life, he's looking at it without God in the picture. He's looking at it in a pure horizontal perspective. He's looking at this world and his experiences under the sun with no God as if though this world and all that we can see, hear, taste, and touch is all that there is. There is nothing beyond the physical. So keep those two in mind, vanity and under the sun. Because this book will become meaningless if we don't keep those words in mind. And so we saw him experiment last week with wisdom. And he came to the conclusion that everything is meaningless, that it's vanity. But this week, Solomon is now going to take his wisdom and his wealth and his considerable means that is at his disposal, and he's now going to try a different experiment. He's going to try to pursue satisfaction by pursuing pleasure. What would it look like if you had all of the money and all of the wealth and all of the resources and all of the ability and the brains to go with it to pursue pleasure to its fullest in order to find satisfaction? So that's what Solomon does in chapter 2. I hope you found Ecclesiastes chapter 2. But ultimately, he comes to the same conclusion he did last week. He finds that the pursuit of satisfaction by pursuing pleasure is, in fact, vanity. Don't take my words for it. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, come on, Solomon. That can't be possibly true. I mean, we have all kinds of fun in life, right? We have all kinds of pleasure. This cannot possibly be true, Solomon. Well, we're going to look at all Solomon did. In fact, it's a wonderful, amazing resume of the things that Solomon did in his pursuit of pleasure, trying to find satisfaction here in this world under the sun. His conclusion is that it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. But that leaves us with a huge question. And that question is, why does the pursuit of pleasure, why is that pursuit so short-lived? Why is the pursuit of pleasure so short-lived? 
Solomon has all of it. He has all of the wealth and the means and the wisdom to try and find every bit of pleasure he can in this world, and he's going to try it, and we're going to read about it. But his summary conclusion is it's all futile. It's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. And what he's going to describe is going to sound like modern day today. But he wrote it a thousand some years ago. It's going to sound very familiar because there's lots of people in this world, perhaps even us, chasing after these things that Solomon does in an effort to find pleasure. But we're going to come to perhaps the same conclusion Solomon does, that it's all vanity. Why is pleasure so short-lived? Solomon is going to take us through a tour of his house of pleasure. I don't know if you've ever looked at the weekend edition of the Detroit Free Press. There's a column every weekend. It's called Michigan House Envy. Any, anybody ever seen that? It's, uh, it's an, uh, every week, it's, it's, it showcases houses for sale that are just extravagant. They're, they're just opulent homes that are set on park-like locations just with shrubs and gardens and waterfalls and infinity pools. And, and they've got indoor basketball rings with, rinks with, with viewing platforms and, and gardens and, and all the rest. I mean, it's stuff we, not, well, most of us can't afford can't make assumptions, but most of us, we, it's, it's house envy because we can't have it, <laughs> or at least I can't. Solomon is going to take us through his house of pleasure, and the first room he stops at is his private pub, his private pub. Notice verse number three. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. He invites us into his private pub and he says, look, I used my wisdom to explore what it would look like to find pleasure and satisfaction by drinking wine, by indulging in alcohol. Now, he uses a phrase. He says, my wisdom was still with me. I think that's code. There's lots of people who will disagree with me, but I think that's code to say that he didn't go overboard. He didn't lose control. He didn't go into a drunken stupor. He was in control because this is an experiment for Solomon. He's trying to find out what's going to bring satisfaction, and he takes in wine. He's like a fine connoisseur of the finer things in life, and he sips and he tries and he tastes wine, trying to find satisfaction. His private pub didn't measure up to what he was hoping. The next place he takes us to is his garden. Notice verse number four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of trees. He's describing houses and and farms and and vineyards and and gardens. It, It was lush. He was a builder and he built things. He he, he decided to plunge himself into building and accomplishing projects that would look beautiful. He obviously built the temple, which took seven years, and it was considered a, a marvel of the ancient world. Ancient kings put a lot of stock and energy into building great gardens for, for themselves and for their people. Just think of the hanging gardens of Babylon, another wonder of the ancient world. And while Solomon took seven years to build the temple of God, it took him twice that long to build his palace. Imagine what that palace must have looked like. 
And then he builds summer palaces and winter palaces, and he builds cities and fortresses, and he just gives himself into building after building, garden after garden, fountain upon fountain, all in an effort to find satisfaction. And then he takes us into his treasury. Notice verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I mean, this man had it all. You know, in the ancient times, you knew how wealthy someone was by the size of their flocks or herds. And Solomon's saying, I had it all. I had more than all the people who were before me in Jerusalem. And on top of just herds and flocks, he had gold. If you read 1 Kings chapter 10, you can see every year how much gold Solomon received. About a decade or two ago, somebody tried to put Solomon's wealth into, into modern-day times, and so these numbers are dated. But they calculated it around 40 to $50 billion. That was a decade or so ago. I mean, if you, you got to, I think, double it for today's world. I mean, this man had everything. Think of having that much money to do that much with it and wanting to plunge yourself into all kinds of experiences and pleasures trying to find satisfaction. What a treasury. Then in the middle of verse 8, he takes us to the music room. He says, I got singers, both men and women. The greatest of boy bands and girl bands and symphonies and orchestras and every kind of music you can imagine. Can you imagine across the palaces of Solomon the kind of music that was being played in the palaces and the halls of Solomon's homes? Every hit music was on stage, on display for him to enjoy. And then he says, welcome to my bedroom. At the end of verse 8, he said, And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Certainly, he didn't just look at wine and music. He also looked at women. He had a lot of them. That's why he needed all those houses anyway, I think. <clears throat> and he indulged in the, in the pleasures of the flesh. He kept nothing from himself. He experienced it all. He enjoyed it all. And it's not like it's all without pleasure. There was pleasure. In fact, if you look at verse number 10, Solomon says that there was pleasure. Notice what he says. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So there was pleasure. There was some satisfaction. I mean, our experiences tell us that that's true, right? When we uh, finish a project, whether it's building a house or refinishing a table or finishing designing some system or, or whatever for work, there's pride, there's satisfaction that we accomplish something, right? Some of us, maybe not in Chesterfield, yeah? <laughs> Pastor Vince, you're going to have to help me out here. Just, uh, maybe a really good smoked brisket? Uh, that's for you, Mike. <laughs> We take pleasure in, in, in accomplishing things, the work of our hands. There's pleasure. Or when we go to on vacation and we go to a, a tropical destination and we're sitting on sandy beaches overlooking turquoise waters, there's certainly pleasure there. If not for you, send me the tickets. I'll go. Or maybe you're sitting on a lake in a kayak or a boat with your fishing line over the edge and enjoying the quiet. 
whether the fish bite or not isn't the point. You're out enjoying God's nature. There's pleasure in those things. Would you agree? And yet, and yet when the project is finished and the vacation is over or the fish don't bite and you come home empty, that satisfaction that you had for a brief moment, what happens to it? It's over and we're back to we call reality. What happened to all that satisfaction? Solomon is saying, look, there was satisfaction, there was pleasure, but it was momentary, it was fleeting. It's a chasing after the wind because it didn't last, he couldn't grasp it. It was there, but it was gone. So there certainly is pleasure, but it's not pleasure that lasts. It's not pleasure that sticks around. And so we have a snagging sense of dissatisfaction. Why is that? Why is it that all the things we do, all the things we try, the things that we think will bring us pleasure and enjoyment, that while it has some level of pleasure in it for us, why doesn't it last? Well, I'm so glad you asked. There's some lessons I think we can take from Ecclesiastes. In fact, there's some things that he's going to write about and some lessons I'd like to give to you about why the stuff in this world doesn't give us all the pleasure we're looking for. And the first is that the world doesn't supply enough pleasure to fully satisfy. Solomon will write in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 this. He says, He who loves money and the pleasure it promises will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. No matter how much money we have and no matter how much wealth we accumulate, it will not satisfy. Why? Because there will always be something newer. There will always be something better. There's always something new to experience or somebody else has one better. And so no matter how much we try to accumulate and fill our lives with stuff, it never satisfies because it's never enough. Solomon will go on to write that every pleasure in this world is temporary. By the way, there's an, a writer <coughs> who said it this way, the advertising agency of pleasure is far better than its manufacturing capacity. I hope you understood that. You see, the pleasures of this world entice us that if you could just have that, if you could just buy that, if you could just go there and experience that, it would just make you feel great. But the advertising agency is far better than its manufacturing capacity. And Solomon will go on to tell us that Every pleasure of this world is temporary. He writes in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Friends, you and I came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave this world with nothing. There are going to be all kinds of pockets on the outfits that we want to wear today, but in, when we're laying in a casket, there are no pockets. We take nothing with us. Many of you have heard the name Lawrence Taylor, right? Again, football analogy. Apologize for those that don't like football. Lawrence Taylor was a Hall of Famer, a linebacker for the New York Giants, and he wrote a book called LT, Over the Edge, and he describes his experiences like this. He said, when I was on the field, I was Superman. It was like I operated on a higher plane, but when I came off the field, something happened. LT became Lawrence, and Lawrence was completely clueless and empty. How can that be? 
A man who has everything, a man who is amazing on the field, but when he's off the field, he's clueless and empty. Now, most of us who have a career take pride and we have pleasure and satisfaction in our career. And I work in an automotive industry and there's lots of people who are just gangbusters to climb the corporate ladder and accomplish something or design something. But as soon as retirement hits, they fall apart. In fact, the average lifespan of a person in the auto industry who retires is about six months. Six months. Because they don't have anything else to identify with. All of their life, they've poured themselves into something, and as soon as they retire, they've got nothing to show for it. Most of the time, we find our, our identity and our satisfaction in being an engineer or a teacher or some kind of career person, a coach, something. And when, we, when, when that goes or when we retire, we're left wanting. We're left desperate to find something else. Why? Because the stuff in this world is only temporary. There's some other warnings that we can infer from this passage in Ecclesiastes 2, and that is that there are legitimate pleasures that we can enjoy in illegitimate ways. There are legitimate pleasures that we can enjoy in this life in illegitimate ways. Solomon certainly took the pleasures that God had designed for good and certainly went beyond the boundaries that God had set, didn't he? God had said marriage is between one man and one woman, and, and well, a thousand women later, Solomon had clearly broken the mold, didn't he? He clearly broke the design pattern God had established. One man and one woman, Solomon said, I can do better. One man, a thousand women. But with that kind of illegitimate experience, there comes disastrous consequences because the Bible says that those women turn Solomon's heart away from God. We all think we can do it better. We all think, hey, Solomon, you didn't give yourself into it enough. You didn't lose control. You didn't, you didn't do it right. Remember, he's the wisest man who ever lived. He let wisdom guide all of his, his experiments, and yet he found it was all vanity. Another lesson I think we can learn is that self-serving ambitions are ultimately inadequate. Self-serving ambitions are ultimately inadequate. If you read through all of these experiments that Solomon did, he did it for who? He did it for himself. All of the parks and buildings and fountains and pools he built, in fact, he uses the word myself or for me dozens of times in this passage. He did it for himself. There was no philanthropic intent in anything that he did. He did it for me, myself, and I. And when we focus on me, myself, and I, disaster is surely waiting for us. And so what is Solomon's conclusion? He already told us, but just in case you missed it, it's in verse number 11 one more time. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was what? <sighs> all was vanity, a chasing after the wind. Notice what it said. All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In its conclusion, it's all futile. It's all a chasing after the wind. In fact, he's using all of these words that he piles on together to talk about his disillusionment with the process of looking for pleasure. 
Look at those words. He says, toil, vanity, striving after the wind, no profit, under the sun. You see, materialism and consumerism and hedonism fails when we search for pleasure apart from God under the sun. It's all vanity. It's all futile. It's all chasing after the wind. And so is chasing pleasure wrong? Well, I think Solomon has already answered that. But then there's a bigger question. Is pleasure wrong? I don't think so. Not if done right. And that brings me to my second point today, and that is that God is a well that never runs dry. God is a well that never runs dry. You see, while we can all chase for pleasure because we were created for pleasure, doing it wrong brings us to the same conclusion Solomon does, and that is it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all futile. But you see, God as a creator, if we can just set our eyes above the sun and look beyond what the physical to what God has created and see him as creator, we'll understand several lessons. In fact, I want to share three lessons that help us understand why God is not a well that ever runs dry. God is a well that never runs dry. And the first is that God created us with the ability to enjoy life and its pleasures. You realize that man is the only one that takes pleasure in life. That's why we enjoy food. We're about to have a picnic. We're going to enjoy some burgers and hot dogs and some food. We're going to enjoy. Your dog doesn't care what kind of food it gets. It just wants to be fed. You and I, filet mignon or White Castle? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Why? Because some of us have refined palates and others don't. <laughs> But it's okay. But it's okay. Why? We have the ability to taste and to experience and to have pleasure from those senses that God has given to us. God created us to have pleasure, to find pleasure. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, just read this, this excerpt from Genesis chapter 2 when God is creating the Garden of Eden. He said, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Why? Because God made us to experience pleasure. God made us to have satisfaction in the eating and in the drinking and in the experiences of life. He's not up in heaven going, No, you've got to have an aesthetic life. Don't experience any of this. Don't laugh. Don't smile. Be even keeled. No, no. God wants us to have pleasure, but not under the sun. He wants us to do it under heaven where we have God in the picture because God created us to experience pleasure. God has designed boundaries that benefit our experience of pleasure. There are boundaries that God has set up some limits that God has set up, like a playground in an elementary school has a fence around it. There's seesaws and swings and jungle gyms and slides and all the rest inside the playground, but there's a fence around the playground. Why? Because the fence keeps the children safe. There's legitimate pleasure God has designed for us, but he set a fence and says, stay here because this is safe. And this is where you can enjoy the maximum pleasure. So when God says marriage and, and sex ought to be between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, he means within the covenant of marriage and not outside. Don't do what Solomon did. 
do what God tells us to do. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says it this way, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I would not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will, de God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We must make sure that there is nothing we do that we are addicted to, that we crave beyond our love for God because God did not make us to be addicted to anything other than Him. Whether that is sex or drugs or alcohol, God says, don't go there. Stay within the boundary of the fence that He has drawn. And the last lesson for you this morning is God has designed us to find our greatest pleasure in Him. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, For you, for you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has designed us to find our greatest pleasure in Him. You see, when God set up the Garden of Eden, it was beautiful. All of these trees with all of these fruits and all of this vegetation and the spring and the water and the river and everything else, it was gorgeous. And God had placed Adam and Eve in that garden to enjoy it. But the greatest enjoyment came when God came into that garden in the cool of the day and met with them. The greatest pleasure you and I can enjoy is when you and I enjoy fellowship with God. When we come together Sunday mornings, when we lift up our hands in worship, when we think about the goodness of a great God, when we think about the faithfulness of a God who loved us so much, when we give ourselves to Him and enjoy Him and take pleasure in Him, God says, I will give you pleasures forevermore. Oh yeah, there's lots of things that this world advertises that it can give you, but there's nothing here that lasts. Everything here points to someone greater. And that is Jesus. You see, Adam and Eve decided that they were going to try to find pleasure on their own. And they broke the commandment God had given them. The one commandment God had given them, they broke in an effort to find pleasure and satisfaction on their own. And as a result, they lost that intimacy they had with God. They lost that paradise that they had in the garden. And God kicked them out. And sin and death entered the world all because they chose to find satisfaction on their own. But God moved heaven and earth for you and me. When he sent Jesus into this world, born of a woman, and just the right time, God sent him to this earth and ultimately he went to a cross to die so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, those of us who put our faith and trust in him might know the fullness of joy that is found at his right hand. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, may I encourage you to come to know him today. There's no place in this world that you're ever going to find satisfaction. No place that you're ever going to find lasting pleasure than at the feet of Jesus. And for those of you who do know Jesus, may I remind you that perhaps you and I have gotten caught up in the pursuit of pleasure, in the frenzied pace of life. Maybe we've gone after this and after that, running after this and running after that. We're, we're running after everything that brings us pleasure. And God says, run to me. Run to me because at my feet are pleasures forevermore. Tim's going to come up and he's going to start playing. And, but I want you to just bow your heads with me for just a minute. We're going to go and have a picnic in just a, a little bit after the next service, of course, not now. And we're going to enjoy 
some burgers and hot dogs and other stuff. And we want you to enjoy. God wants you to enjoy. But let me just read one verse for you as I close. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Friends, everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world fades, rots, decays, or rusts. But there is one who never will. If you have put your faith and trust in him, you never have to fear what tomorrow holds. You never have to wonder where your pleasure is coming from. You know where it's coming from. Instead of running after all the things of this world, run to him. Because we have a father who stands with his arms open wide and says, come home. Come to me. And I will give you blessing upon blessing. Blessings we don't deserve, but blessings because he's faithful. If you're in Jesus, may I encourage you to do everything we do, whether we eat or drink or work or play. Do it all for the glory of God. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.